Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. real everybody i'm pete wright and that there is andy nelson hey 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 and we spoil movies tonight in the show it's another oceans 11 movie this time less rat pack but a whole lot more fun with clooney and crew in soderbergh's 2001 remake please state your name for the record daniel ocean you have been implicated in over a dozen other confidence schemes and frauds what do you think you would do if released i don't know how much do you guys make a year never been done before you want to knock over a casino three casinos you got to be nuts exactly this place houses a security system that rivals most nuclear missile silos smash and grab job huh slightly more complicated than that oh yeah you'd need at least a dozen guys doing a combination of cons ten ought to do it don't you think you think we need one more you think we need one more all right we'll get one more Andy, uh, um, so here's the thing about this movie. I am super defensive about it. I don't get why I am. I need to let that go. I have kind of an emotional thing with this movie. I feel like every time I talk to somebody about this movie, they have things that they don't like about it, and that hurts my feelings. Why is that? Um, I th- would think it's probably a, a, a breeze of a film to watch. It's light. It's entertaining. And, and if somebody doesn't like... Uh, part of what you find so breezy and entertaining, then it taints that, and it takes away the the element that says this is breezy, entertaining fun, and it turns it into something that is uh, dark and foreboding. That's exactly what I would have written in my review. If it weren't for all the taint <laughs> that has made this dark and foreboding, this would be a great movie. I uh, I adore uh, this movie. I really do. I have a great time with it. I think everything works. I think the the uh, the eleven are uh, well selected. It's a cast that works really well together. Uh, it, it is one of those casts that excites me because I read about all of the weird sort of casting changes that happened at the last minute, and I I still think uh, they ended up with just the right people in the right parts. Even Basher and his accent, I find charming, though terrible. Uh, and so uh, I I have a great time with this movie. I, 
I think I want to start because I think the parallel for me with this movie and indeed heist films in general, there's a there is a parallel that we we ran into uh, with time travel movies that the better the time travel movie, the better the heist movie, the easier it is to keep up with what's going on to make sense of the gambit uh, at, at the end of the movie. Uh, how well does this movie hold up in that regard for you? I think that is a very clever element of this film. I, I enjoy how they pull the heist. I think it is quite a fun way to do it. I don't know if I completely believe it, but I think the film does a great job of setting it up where you don't necessarily have to believe that it's exactly you know doable. Um, I think they do a great job of making it feel doable. And what I really appreciate in this film is it feels like all 11 members of the team... Um, Granted, maybe the Malloy twins, you, you really only need one of them, maybe not two. Um, but really, I mean, they all are doing something. And that I find so much more um, uh, important when you're telling a story with a cast as large as this, um, that uh, they could not figure out how to make work um, as effectively in the original film. Even the characters that feel a little bit shoehorned in here, you know, we have this, uh, uh, the Julia Roberts character who was, I, I, you know, was only on set shooting for two weeks and, and, and was really, um, you know, I think the case has been made that she was sort of sidelined as the female character. I think for, for me, uh, her role is, is still relevant and important. And I think the charisma between the two of them makes her part more relevant in this movie and more useful. I think her part in this film is the only reason that I find myself more drawn to it than I have in previous iterations. Um, oh, I want to hear more about that. Well, I, I think what I found watching this film, the, the thing that really frustrated me when I first watched it is it felt like it wasn't really a fully fleshed out story. It's like, okay... Here's some guys who want to um, heist, do this heist to steal all this money from these casinos. They uh, set a plan in motion and they do it. And that was it. I'm like, okay, there, it really didn't give me any, any twists, any there. I mean, there's really nothing there. I never felt, um, you know, any sense of change from anybody. I never really felt much of anything. It's just like the, the story goes into motion, they do it, and it's over. Okay. Um, and I, I still feel that way largely with the, the, the bulk of the story. But what I really found this time in watching it is that the film really relies on that element of the, um, of the relationship change with Tess uh, and her love for Danny that unfortunately I don't think it's as, as it, it's not as developed as I think it needs to be to really make it as important as it should have been. But I think that really is the whole crux of this story that Danny is really doing this whole thing. I mean, sure, they're getting incredibly rich because of this whole heist, but at the same time, his ulterior motive is that he's doing this to win Tess back. And, um, and the beautiful, beautiful scenes that we have at the end of the film when, um, they have her watch the feed and they and she sees uh you know uh Danny and Terry talking and 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 Danny saying you know uh, if i help you uh will you give up tests and he says yes anything to get my money back or whatever he says and that was a great turn to see but then the the moment after that when we see uh Tess kind of have that realization that she wants to be with Danny uh, she's really the one who is making the change in this story. And because of that, I, I really found myself drawn to her so much more on this watching. And I found that this was the core of the story and the reason that um, that I ended up really connecting it to it this time. That's right. And it sort of starts with a scene, um, you know, when uh, Rusty, um, Brad Pitt's character, actually calls him out on it, right? When he discovers that it's Tess who's in this casino, uh, that Tess is who Matt Damon has been, uh, you know, hunting or stalking for the last couple of days, that it's Tess and he knows the backstory already and calls Danny out on it in the warehouse. That is an interesting turn because it paints Danny as the uh, the lovesick idiot who's doing this thing for the wrong reasons, who's distracted. But it turns out over the course of the of the gambit, over the course of the heist, uh, that it, that Danny was right, that Danny 
believed in this relationship that he had. He believed in the love that that she still had for him. Believed that Terry was, a, you know, a, a, you know the the bad guy, and was able to turn everybody. And I think it's just very clever at the way they they actually, uh, you know, wrote those pieces into place to to make it uh, at least somewhat believable at the end uh, when she turns and and runs to him. Uh, as he's being let off in the police car, I I think it I think it works. If anything, the the actual turn when she runs down the sidewalk in front of the Bellagio is is the only sequence that is a touch heavy handed for me. Uh, but um, but it still works. It's still believable, and I'm still I, you know I'm I'm heartsick for them. Come well, and, and it's funny because for, for me, that is like the emotional core of the film, and I don't think the film would um, be uh, you know worth its uh, its salt without that scene. I think that really for me became the core moment of the whole film, and I I was so much more connected to the film because of that scene. Well, I, I you know have just a little bit. I'm just I'm not saying I disagree. <laughs> I'm just, it's a little bit. Uh, uh, okay, so let's talk about some of the major uh, elements of the uh, the the heist that it, film, and and especially comparing it to some of our, our criticisms of last week's movie, because I think that's that's kind of important. Because the things that I wanted to love in last week's movie, I think they get right in this movie. And the first one is building the team. Uh, how do you how do you feel about how they pulled the team together? Well, this is actually building a team, and I appreciate that so much. The last film, like we discussed last week, it's like they already had a team together, and they're just kind of getting everybody together. And it was, and it lasted for half the film, and it was really tedious. Um, this film really feels like they they have that great conversation early on where they're like, "We need a an Ella Fitzgerald and in a whatever Boski or whatever the random list of of right. things that they need." Uh, Miss Daisy and uh, and then they go and they kind of recruit this team and I, I like the way that it feels where they're actually finding the right people to be a part of this and um, it actually works it's I'm engaged I'm interested and I felt like this is how you build a team. I love the sequence when he's, mess- you know, making those those comments to, uh, you know, the Boski and the Jim Brown and a Miss Daisy and two Jethro's and a Leon Spinks. It, it turns out that um, there's background to those. Yeah. And I I didn't, I, you know, I'd never given it much thought. But, uh, you know, the Boski is a reference to Ivan Boski, the the Wall Street, uh, big time Wall Street trader who was uh, who got put away for. Uh, securities fraud. Uh, it it's about a bankroller who has some sort of insider information, and there's the Jim Brown, uh, which is the the confrontation uh, between Catton and uh, Linus, uh, which was staged for Terry Benedict so that Linus could do the pickpocket thing, uh, and uh, that was named after the the football player. Uh, I, I'm not much of a football uh, aficionado, but I imagine that's because he was, I don't know, fleet-footed of some sort. I, I guess he was maybe good with his hands. <laughs> I'm guessing on that one. Anyway, they go through the whole thing, and I think it's savvy, not only screenwriting, but intent and actually executing these things so that you can piece them back together. I think it works works very well. The building the team part works well because of the pacing large. I mean, that was a thing that was such a drag in the last movie. It was an hour before we get into what is this thing all about. Here, you know, we have a, a bit of a protracted uh, opening with the, uh, you know, the actors who are learning to play poker. That is a, that's a fun sequence. Uh, but I mean, at 12 minutes, we're looking at the first blueprints, right? We're, we are ready to go. We're making the pitch uh, to Reuben at his breakfast, uh, you know, minutes after that. We have got Bernie Mac first, Brad Pitt, uh, Elliot Gould. At 18 minutes, they begin just blasting through the rest of the uh, of the team. And we have this team built, and it's smart and funny and quick, and I'm interested in every one of their little stories. And um, uh, and and then we get on to the meat of the of the heist, and I think that that is a, a thing where this movie really excels. That is really the the place where it excels, and and it's the way that they develop it, where you don't even realize that you're kind of into the heist. You know, it's it's kind of fun. You have these elements like, oh, we've got to build this model of the of the vault just so we can practice and things like that, which seems so yeah. absurd when you think about it. And then in the end, you go, oh, okay, I get why they're doing it. Yeah. But it's fun. Yeah. They set it up in a way where it all makes sense, and you don't really think about it. And I think that's just that's smart storytelling. Um, I do struggle a little bit with some of the um, the early 
conversation scenes between um, primarily between Clooney and Pitt. Um, as much as I love these two actors, I feel so often when they are having their conversations that it's two actors having conversations. It just feels like, you know, they're having a fun time making this movie and it doesn't feel completely like they're actually the characters um, in the film. Um, that happens quite a bit in the first bit. And, it, and I don't know if that's them so much as maybe it's just how how the the script um ended up getting written it just it might feel too written too written by ted griffin um but i don't know as i watched the film this time i uh i asked myself you know how much does that really matter is it is is it that important or is this film designed to just be fun and give us a good time and and just make it something where we can just kind of let go and not have to worry about all that sort of stuff um i I still have a feeling that I will have a hard time letting go of those elements that, that I do feel kind of um, false and stagey. But at the same time... About, just, just so I know, are you talking about like their... their uh, like Clooney and Pitt, you all bet, of their... You bet big and you take the house. That, that was good, no, right? That was good, it's right? More that, like, kind of it's more like, you know, when they're talking about, you know, how many, is it 10, is it 11, you know, that scene. That's one of my favorite sequences. I knew you were going to bring that out. It's one of my very favorite sequences in the film. That it's, little it, scene, it's perfectly shot. It's perfect angle. Pitt doesn't say anything. I love it. No, I, I love all of that, but it just feels written. And I think that's what what happens often in the early scenes here, um, particularly with the two of them, where it just feels written and their dialogue feels written and the way that it plays out just feels staged and written. And um, like everything with as much as I enjoy um, Pitt and the actors like Topher Grace and and Shane, uh, uh, what's his name, and all those guys. It's very fun, but I always feel like, uh, you know, until we start really getting the rest of the gang, I just feel like everything is just coming out of a screenwriter's hand, as they say. But what's it. so funny about that is that is reportedly largely improvised, That it, particularly that sequence, that it wasn't written at all. Well, then it's on them. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are some some great moments in there when Topher Grace stands up and says "All rents." <laughs> I think I about lose it. Uh, I think it's very very good, and I I love these little bits. You know, when when Brad Pitt is sitting at the bar and he's just exhausted, he's trying to have a conversation with a bartender, and nobody can hear each other, and then you see just Clooney's chest pass behind him. Behind him, I mean, it took me probably four or five viewings to notice. Oh. That's where Clooney went into the back room. What? Uh, that's very clever. I love how they did that. Yeah. Uh, and and so the little pieces of uh, of that. I think the architecture of it. I think worked worked very very well. I had a I had a great time. And again, back to pacing. Uh, they explain the caper at, straight up at thirty minutes after some nice entertaining little bits. And, and I should say, ending on uh, Matt Damon. I think his was the last one. The the pickpocket. Um, and Matt Damon is wearing my favorite hat in cinema. And I had never noticed it. And it was actually because I use this joke around my house all the time when I'm helping my kids with their homework. And so it was my daughter who noticed it this time around and actually pointed it out to me that Brad, Matt Damon is wearing a hat, a red hat with a triangle patch on it that has the hat in it. And on that hat is a patch with that same hat on it. It is a hat on a hat. On a hat, which delights me. It tickles me all up and down in just the right way. Do you wish you could buy that hat? I do. I really <laughs> wish I could buy that hat. I totally I would wear that hat every day. I would but I would want that hat to be <laughs> the mascot for our show. Are you kidding? <laughs> the next reel. A hat on a hat on a hat. It is pretty uh, clever. It is so uh, clever, and it's so clever for this movie. Uh, which is doing so much to to just be aware of itself, you know. To uh, we know what we're we know what we're getting into when we step on this particular property. Uh, I think it's great. You know, there is some speaking of just the way this thing is is shot, and I think there is a lot to learn from uh, Soderbergh's camera and editing and and um, uh, you know placement. There is a sequence in here that feels like something that would annoy me, but otherwise I think is fantastic and. I, I think it's something, <laughs> I don't know, it feels like you should have picked it out as something that would really bug me, um, because I normally it would, but for some reason they get away with it in this movie. This is the sequence when they're talking about the, uh, uh, what's his name, the electrician, uh, and they're talking about bringing him into the fold, and he is, they have a long shot across the park 
of this guy. They're talking about him in one location. And then they cut to a long shot across the park as he's like tripping over the dog and everything. And they pull back the camera. And suddenly they're still talking about him, but they're eating breakfast on a balcony now looking at him. It's as if that conversation just went straight through. And I have complained about that in the past. For some reason, that works for me very, very well right here. I think so much of that falls to the nature of the uh, the fun story, right? This is a very lighthearted, easygoing caper. It's nothing that is offensive. It's nothing that is dark. You know, they're they're you know robbing three casinos, but nobody's ever really shooting guns. It's all done in light fun, and I think because of that that storytelling style ends up working. When you do it in a film like No, which is about, you know, Chilean uh, political revolts, it doesn't make as much sense. Right. Right. <laughs> right. right. Maybe that's the difference. Not enough <laughs> Chilean politics in this movie. Uh, it's actually an interesting point you make about the violence. There is only one, uh, I, I think there's, there's one sequence of in, intentional murderous violence in in this movie. And that's at the very beginning. It's the third robbery in the flashback, where they, you know, the camera's back from or sort of pulling back at a distance, and you see them shooting the. Uh, oh, it's the, the the three the three famous attempts for stealing money from exactly. the, the casinos, yeah. right? And the third yeah, one, it's only the third one, he gets shot. It's Berlin <laughs> playing. <laughs> that's right. Uh, take my breath away in slow mo as the <laughs> Don Johnson <laughs> apparently is robbing. <laughs> <laughs> so good yeah good times we but even that because times. it's the way that it's shot in slow-mo you have berlin singing take my breath away it, even though we have you know the security guards gunning down a thief it's still done in a very fun lighthearted way that really you're laughing at and it's sad to hear but really you are and and i think to that end that's you know things like that I'm I'm curious to know how this film is going to hold up, um, you know, in in 50 years um, when, you know, we're as far away from it or, or thereabouts as we are from the original Ocean's Eleven. Like, is it still going to hold up? Is it is the humor going to hold up? Is the is the way that Soderbergh put the film together and kind of the storytelling style? Will it all make sense still? Or is it going to have a dated feel much like the original Ocean's Eleven? I don't know if it will. I feel like this is going to hold up longer over time than the original because the original was relying solely on on the the names and their uh, presence in the film that it didn't bother with making a good story at all. This exactly. one, I feel like they do a much better job of actually putting a cohesive heist together um, with really interesting characters. And so I feel like even if some of the stuff might be a little dated... I don't feel it's going to be as dated as that version is. I, I have to look at my teenager, right? I mean, I have to look and say, like, even though you have no pop culture connection to most of these people, right? Is this still a good movie? Is this still a movie that you'd sit down and watch, you know, when you have other things you could also be doing? And the answer has always been yes, uh, that this movie is super entertaining. This movie is one they want to watch and watch over and over again uh, because it's it's a fun, funny, entertaining, you know, breezy story, well-paced story, and uh, doesn't rely on uh, the the just star power. I, I think, for me, the star power adds something to it because I do know who those guys are, and I think it's funny uh, to see them doing certain things, and it's also fun for me to try and explain them. Here's why this is funny for these people to be in this movie, but, uh, but you don't need it. You don't need it. I think the movie stands alone. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about um, getting it made. I, I guess this was, you know, they, they had a lot of people on the list to jump on to this film. I think pretty early on, um, they wanted to do this with kind of an ensemble cast of movie stars. Because of that, it became um, rather complex because once you start getting movie stars on board to to be one of the 11, I guess you could say 12 once you throw Julia Roberts into the mix... 13, really, because we're also talking about Terry Benedict. Uh, you want you want to get as many stars in those roles as possible. All of a sudden, it turns into a, a challenge because these are not people who are dropping other projects for this one. These are uh, people who drop 
of this project for her other projects, right? Right. right. And that it's became, Ocean's Infinity War. <laughs> right. And that became a real challenge because so many of these people had other um, other things lined up. Mike Myers was on board at one point. Um, I mean, just the list of people who were on at some point and then had to drop out due to scheduling conflicts. Mike Myers, Bruce Willis, who apparently was going to be Danny in the original uh, uh, casting before I can, um, I can see he that. had to pull out. Uh, I think that's a great choice. And I yeah. love that he ends up coming back in the next one. Ewan McGregor was originally going to be um, uh, uh, Basher. Um, Alan Arkin was on board. I, I am assuming um, in uh, in Carl Reiner's part. Yeah. Um, Ray Fiennes was on board as, uh, I think, Benedict. Luke and Owen Wilson uh, were on as the twins, but they had to pull out uh, due to commitments for Royal Tenenbaums. And then the next choices, which is so strange to me, were Joel and Ethan Cohen. <laughs> oh, man. I had not heard that. I, I can't even picture those the wow. directors, writer-directors, uh, as like actors in this film. I love the idea. I think it's really clever. But um, anyway, they, uh, they didn't, <laughs> didn't work out for them either, which was fine. Um, Mark Wahlberg, uh, he was actually cast as Linus, but he ended up dropping it to jump onto Planet of the Apes, which I'm guessing <laughs> is a franchise he thought was going to just take off. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, uh, Danny Glover sight. was uh, was on board to play Frank, but um, ended up dropping four Tenenbaums. Sidney Pollack, Dennis France, Warren Beatty, Michael Douglas, Don Rickles. Um, and then wow. I guess Johnny Depp was also considered as uh, as Linus, so... Wow. crazy that they yeah, ended up with this crazy. cast and that it ended up being such a perfectly cohesive cast that all felt like they were meant to be in the roles that they have we should probably transition over to the deep scene dive don't you think yeah let's do it i think there are arguably uh better sequences we could have picked for the deep scene dive but this one i, I think is important because it's the it, it's a corollary scene to the one we picked in the last film and i wanted to talk just a little bit about your thoughts uh, for how they handled this this moment, the emotion and the framing of this moment in this film compared to last film. Last film, we talked about the end of the film in the in the um, uh, this was in the the church. The, they're doing the the final uh, sequence, the goodbye team sequence is there, uh, and then they exit and walk down the streets of Las Vegas. Here, the robbery's done, and the team, uh, barring Danny, has he's been taken away. Uh, they've escaped in the SWAT trucks, uh, and uh, Tess had heard what Terry said about dumping her to get the money back, and, and Danny's arrested, and now we're watching sort of the team uh, as they uh, dissolve. Yeah, it's kind of an intercut between Tess breaking up with Terry uh, to chase after Danny, and then the team um, kind of dumping the SWAT trucks and watching the fountains of the Bellagio, right? Yeah, right. I um, it's funny that you say there are probably better scenes for me. This is the core, <laughs> the core <laughs> moment that actually made this film work for me. Um, so it's funny that you say it that way. Yes, there are probably more fun scenes and that's scenes what I mean. That's that, that a better done way to put it really well. But man, this scene, this, this, this bit with Tess and Terry one, I just love the way the breakup is done. What a great callback that is. Uh, I think that works really nicely. This but is then, you're talking about when she says there are eyes. There you, you have all people to know in your hotel. Yeah, yeah there's always uh, yeah. somebody watching. Yeah, great moment. But really, for me, it it is that moment when we have well two two parts of this. The part with Tess focusing on that storyline where we see her um, as she's walking out of the the casino, walking through the floor. And it's it's a it's an incredible shot. And it's just a beautiful long tracking shot as we're walking back with her and we're just looking at her. And this is this is great acting, right? Where you're looking at a person and you're getting all of everything that they're thinking about on their face as she's you know kind of going through this process of everything that just happened regarding Terry, and then kind of that pause and that transition as she realizes you know, everything about Danny and that she really loves Danny and wants to be with him. And then kind of that, that fantastic run out of the casino, which for me, it, it's not as high up there as, um, as like Billy Crystal running, 
to get to Meg Ryan in uh, When Harry Met Sally. But it's a great moment. We have her kind of changing her uh, her motivation right there and her pursuit to go find her, find him. I love that. That to me is like the emotional core of the film. And I, I really connected with that. But then I also really connected with the other 10 minus Clooney all standing off uh, watching the fountains of the Bellagio in just a beautiful moment as we're listening to Claire de Lune and we're just seeing them stare at it and then slowly peel away one at a time. It's a beautiful way to kind of just wrap this up. And yes, I love the the kind of that connection of the first film where you have everybody kind of depressed as all their money burned up and they just kind of were walking past the camera one at a time. Um, just like that, I feel like, you know, it's, it's almost a nod as, as one peels away one at a time and leaves the fountain. But I just felt so much stronger connection to this one because I really cared about these guys. I'm right with you on that. Uh, two points. First, you know, we have a much, I, I was commenting last week about how much I liked that the way the camera was backing up, uh, as at, at that low angle as the crew sort of walked, uh, parallel and by, and you get the homage to that angle. I don't know if it was attention, intentional here, but in this sequence, we get the music start to play, and um, uh, the camera backs up as the crew emerges out of the warehouse in the, into the light, where it's the first time you actually get a clear perspective uh, of where they are in relationship to the Bellagio, like how close their garage is, how close the, you know, what the the you know, replica that they've been working on this whole time really is just sort of right across the street from the Bellagio. But we have the camera at that low angle moving backwards. Uh, I think Matt Damon's in front and they're just sort of walking slowly as the music picks up and they end up uh, taking their place across the street at the Bellagio. I I, I find it very touching um, and and a a moving sequence. And the way they shot this scene, the the Soderbergh direction was, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think... This was the very last thing they shot intentionally, that this was the very last scene of the movie and the last scene that they shot. And it was the last scene they shot in Vegas before they went to L.A. to finish all the interiors. Okay, okay. So uh, you already have that sort of emotional connection to the place that you're about to say goodbye to the place, which has been a very important uh, kind of thing. And then Soderbergh says, I want you to just hang out and watch it and leave when you feel like it's right. You know, there's there's nothing sort of scripted here. I just want you to to take it all in and, and see how it feels. And and I get that, you know, I, I, I get that out of the sequence. And, and uh, for me, it's it's very powerful as they start start peeling off looking at each other i i'm i am moved i am moved soderbergh is a director who um i don't always like his films um but i love that he's always experimenting he's doing indie films where he's just playing around and trying new things he's doing big budget things and and he's still playing around and trying new things and i think that is to be respected i love that uh you know in this film um he was really pushing to not have to rely on on coming back to the same angles. You know, he would try to um, when he would have these conversations. He, I, I can't remember where what era he was referencing, but he was looking at older films and he liked how when they would cut scenes together, notably like their action sequences. I think he was speaking to this on the commentary specifically about the heist, where they would um, they would not necessarily be cutting back to the same angle. Every time they would cut, it would be a new angle, a new shot. And he felt that it gave it a lot of life. And so he was really pushing to do that. Um, in this bit of the film, there is more kind of that back and forth cutting, which is fine. It works in context of what he's doing here. You know, the heist is over. We're at a period of kind of more relaxation and it kind of falls to kind of more standard practices. But I love that he still is trying new things. And and my favorite um, cinematic moment here in this uh, section that we're talking about is when you have Andy Garcia as Terry, just you can tell that he is just fuming inside, but he plays cool so brilliantly. Andy Garcia, man, do I just, I mean, this is the sort of movie where you just fall for the guy because he's just so powerful on screen. But it's when he, after Tess leaves him and he kind of walks back to his elevator and he goes in and you got a close up of his face as he's looking right at you and the doors close and it's complete black. And then all of a sudden you're tilting up to 
the um you know the the 11s truck there's SWAT truck pulling into this garage of theirs and just the way that that transition happens is so smooth and and just makes it a breeze and and he's talked about how how transitions are such key elements of films and i've heard kubrick talk about this and all this it's a it's a key element that filmmakers realize as they're telling their story is it is one of the most important things getting from one scene to the next and man if soderbergh doesn't do it just brilliantly throughout this film we talked about george clooney as danny ocean uh he had to drop out of some other stuff to to land in this one well yeah he was the first one to commit to this one um and I am guessing it's because he was on at a larger level with this project. Um, but yeah, he was um, going to be in the film Unfaithful as the lead there and ended up having to drop out of that one. So all these other people were dropping out of this film. <laughs> he is the one who dropped out of another film so that he could stay on this one. I'm not sure what four nines does, but that ace, I think, is pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> I love Danny Ocean. Brad Pitt, uh, we talked about as uh, Rusty. Matt Damon is uh, Linus. Uh, Don Cheadle is the one that has some controversy. Yeah, his accent was terrible. Um, I think that everybody said it was one of the worst accents in film. Um, He said, this is kind of funny. He said, my British friends tell me it's a truly terrible London accent in Ocean's. I guess specifically this was Ocean's 13 in this conversation. You know something? I really worked on that accent. Went to London, spoke to people, got to know it. My agent said it was fine. So I'm stuck with this thing, even though everyone laughs at me. So I sacked her, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He and Dick Van Dyke, man. Own those accents. Own those accents. Well, and it's funny because apparently he was trying to do a better accent in 12 and 13, but they said you can't. You have to do it like you did last time (laughs) to keep the character going. I love that. Oh, that's too funny. Before Uh, you you go on, I just have to point out, I, I found it so odd, and I don't know why they chose this, but Danny Ocean is the only character who's named... Um, from the character in the original film. The rest of these 10 that we're talking about, their names in no way connect to the previous uh, film. So I just thought that was a strange thing that's worth pointing out. That is very strange. I think I think that Norman Fell would have been Basher, though. <laughs> no, you're lampooning Norman Fell, but you know he would be an incredible Cockney. <laughs> I'm <laughs> he sure would, he would. He would lock that Cockney accent. Oh. Oh, Norman. Bernie Mac is Frank Catton. I actually really liked Bernie Mac in this. Uh, I'm so glad Danny Glover didn't stick around for this one. Yeah, I, I Bernie Mac, um, I think, may have been one of my favorites. And uh, I find that in so many films when Bernie Mac is involved, I just enjoy watching him so much. He's a brilliant screen presence. And uh, yeah, yeah, so I'm glad to see him here. Now, you said uh, the Malloy twins were too much for you, that you could have taken either Scott Conn or Casey Affleck. Why is that? Make your case. I didn't mean it like that. I actually love the Malloy twins. I think they're hilarious. What I meant was, did they really need both of them? Like, were they doing anything separately that one couldn't have done by themselves? That's what I meant. In context of the job, I don't think they ever did anything by themselves. Did they? I well, I guess right. maybe I mean, Virgil, always... Virgil's driving the 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 uh the phantom van but uh, but still i mean you're right but so what because the malloy twins are one identity well my that's the but what i'm saying what i'm saying though is when when you have rusty and danny talking in the bar trying to figure out who they need for their team and what sort of team size they need like they're not thinking of names yet and they yeah. come to 11 but that makes no sense if the if the malloy twins work as one no, I see your point. I see your point. I do. I see your point. I don't like it, but I see it. <laughs> I just want to see them doing something different instead of always doing the same thing together. Well, they had a thing, Andy. They had they a did, gimmick. and it's very funny. I love that thing. My favorite use of that thing is when they're pushing the cart and um, they go, oh, I forgot my card. And they like have their little tiff right there. They got those guys, the other guards. They're like, God, calm down. It's fine. Just remember your card next time. <laughs> That was that was the moment that I just I really appreciated that moment. To that uh, end, I guess yeah. they needed each other to create those sort of constant diversions. But yes, yes, but still, they did. I, still, going back, I can't imagine that that was in in Rusty and Danny's mind as they were putting the 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 concept of who they needed together. 
Well, they certainly had talked about two Jethros, and that's who they were talking about. <sighs> maybe, I guess. They must have had him in mind. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think, you're, I think you're wrong, and I think what just happened is I poked a hole, and that hole is going to open up, and, it, and eventually it will be a flood of understanding and awareness, and you'll come to agree with me that they're, they're brilliant, and in fact, you need them both. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let that simmer. I'm going to sit on that. What I do like about the Malloy twins is their names are Turk and Virgil, which is a callback to the Godfather, because as you may recall, Scott Kahn's father, who is James Kahn and played Santino uh, or Sonny Corleone, um, he was actually, uh, um, uh, his attempted assassination uh, was by uh, uh, Virgil the Turk Salazzo. Carl Reiner is Saul Bloom uh, and uh, Elliot Gould is uh, Ruben. Uh, Elliot Gould kind of plays the... The money man, uh, who was the apoplectic Russian uh, gangster Greek. in the original, or the Greek gangster yeah. in the original movie. Yeah. Uh, I vastly prefer Elliot Gould here. Oh, I do too. I I, I think Am- uh, Amir uh, Tamarov, uh, whatever. Uh, I think did an admirable job, um, but I think Elliot Gould plays that uh, just so much better. And it's just it's not as over the top. And annoying as it was in the previous film. And and you mentioned Carl Reiner. You just kind of passed over him. But I think Carl Reiner and Saul Bloom has to be probably my favorite character in this film. Because Carl Reiner, there's something about his presence on screen that just just melts me. Like he's just like it's it's like watching a grandpa on screen and you're just like, oh, I just want to be I just want to be watching you the whole time because you're so enjoyable to watch. And the fact that he's the last one at the fountain uh, in our right here in our scene dive, as he kind of looks at it and just does that look, he gives it a look that I'm like, oh, that is like a big moment. And and the fact that he's the last one there and gives it that moment, um, I really appreciated that. And it just made me want to see more Carl Weiner. I uh, I absolutely agree with you. I think he's he's fantastic and and is a. It's interesting. He's a he's a a good heart in this movie. He's a good heart of this movie, uh, and still, they give him the heart disease, literal heart heart problems, that turn out to be part of the gag. Yeah, or are they? I don't know. He's definitely got indigestion. We know that. He- he sure can make himself sweat then, right? Yes. <laughs> because boy, is he covered in sweat when he's uh, faking it. Right. I this And this is uh, an issue I have with the kind of the structure of the heist is all of that sort of stuff where it's, it's very much the sting where all of these people are playing parts. Um, I, I struggle a bit because I, I feel like it's such a stretch for some of it to happen perfectly the way that it does. But again, it goes back to the lightness that the film plays with, and I, I end up feeling like I, I don't care so much. I, I find myself not worrying about it so much. Like so many of our listeners who complained to us about our, our problems with the time travel elements of About Time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were, we were It's a light movie. You're that. not supposed to worry. Yeah, you're not supposed to think about it. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think it's interesting that, in fact, you know, no haze code here. Uh, they don't kill the guy with the heart attack in the beginning of the movie or in the end of the movie. And the, the thieves get away with all the cash. And uh, I find that uh, I find that uh, fantastic. I love it. It needed to work out that way. But what I love about it is that, um, and just again, speaking to the, our deep scene dive here, George Clooney and, and Julia Roberts um, have that moment by the police car when he looks at her and says, I told you, I always knew what I was doing. And even though he's going to jail again, and that was all part of his plan. And that to me, um, says everything about this film and and what it is about the nature of this love story and that this whole thing kind of came together because of his love for Tess and the fact that he didn't want to lose her and the way that it all unfolded I find really beautiful especially at that moment when she's saying goodbye to him man did that just hit me this time I, I we've talked about my uh, love for Soderbergh's uh, camera and editing and in fact uh, as Peter Andrews, he did he serve as cinematographer on this film. Again, we've talked about this before. I think he did the same thing in Side Effects. We talked about that on the film board. Uh, and uh, I I feel like when I saw this movie, I was at a place where I was just starting to take on my own camera jobs uh, outside of television. And 
uh, I learned and applied a lot immediately. I did. <laughs> my first job was a, a bit for the Oregon Humane Society. And I mean, it was practically Ocean's Oregon Humane Society. It was <laughs> split screening and crazy touch angles. And uh, I, I had a blast uh, applying uh, Soderbergh's camera techniques to my own stuff. It's really fun. Yeah, I mean, he, again, like going back to what I said earlier, he's a consummate filmmaker who's always trying stuff and he never is just reliant on on um, things that have gotten him by in the past. He's always pushing himself. And for that, I will always respect the man. Uh, now, editing, sometimes he does. He serves as his own editor. Did he do that on this movie? No, Stephen Mirioni did the editing. Okay, here. all right. I don't, does he really? Yeah, uh, well, we talked about in side effects. He was Marianne Mirioni, uh, which was also Soderbergh. Yeah, yeah, Marianne Bernard or Bernard. That's right. That's right. For me, I think his his touch, uh, you know, and, and clearly working with an editor, he's he has a nice nice touch, and I think all that goes to pacing, uh, which was such a relief, such a relief in this film. Well, and I think that helps largely is that uh, David Holmes's music throughout is just an incredible incredible um choice for this because it has that kind of 70s jazzy vibe that makes it incredibly fun to listen to and and just whether it's i mean honestly i mean the soundtrack to this is just killer so many great tracks um the elvis tune little less conversation became a huge hit after this um but i mean david holmes music i think really just ties everything together beautifully I think so too, and man, from the very first cue, you know, he's he is uh, he walks in, and there's that there you have that first the the very first shot is that wonderful Soderbergh sort of symmetry with that chair in the middle of this giant widescreen, and Danny comes out and he sits in it, and you don't see the parole board, but you know we're in a parole hearing, and and that question, what do you think you would do if released, and it just holds on Danny, and then boom, that first note uh, from that first cue is. It, it's just perfect. It drives you right into the movie, and you, you I, I feel like you know exactly what you're going to get uh, thanks to the music in that first scene. It's just great. Yeah, it, it does have a very 70s-ish kind of jazzy uh, vibe, which works really nicely, and it plays into what Soderbergh was doing anyway because he was throwing a lot of 70s uh, zooms, like those crash zooms uh, in, and just you know, he was doing 30s and 40s sort of styles. I mean, he he was all over the place with different techniques that he was throwing in here. And I love that everybody else was kind of in on it with him. So they did a great job. We got some, we got some fun uh, cameos. Yeah. I just thought it was really nice during the big fight night scene at the boxing arena. There's a quick shot. Unfortunately, it's just one shot, but you do see uh, Henry Silva and Angie Dickinson um, having their little cameo in that, um, both from the original Ocean's Eleven film. And it was uh, Henry Silva's last film before he retired. So it was just, it was nice. It was a nice nod that, uh, that Soderbergh did. We, they also dropped a uh, Weintraub in there as another, uh, uh, another cameo. Yeah. Which I found this so interesting that, uh, so Jerry Weintraub, who's the producer, he's in the high roller room playing Baccarat with, uh, Lyman Zerga, uh, which is great. And he's the one who says to Zerga, he says, don't get into Terry Benedict for too much money. And I guess he's credited as the high roller. He'll appear in Ocean's 12 as the American businessman who has a key role and in uh, Ocean's 13 as Denny Shields. Um, and apparently he's kind of interwoven in all three films. Um, and what's interesting is that he also played a high roller named Jilly, the, Jilly from Philly in Vegas Vacation, which is a movie that he also produced before <laughs> these ones. Um, and uh, appearing next to him is an uncredited man in, in his crew with dark hair, glasses, and a dark beard. And I guess that this same guy is um, is next to him in Ocean's Eleven. Apparently, um, he's so now. <laughs> some people say, "Is this actually all happening in the same world? Is Vegas Vacation <laughs> and the Oceans are they all of the same universe?" <laughs> Oh, there's an Ocean's uh, <laughs> Lampoon's <laughs> cinematic universe, Andy. Oh, apparently so. Oh, I don't, I don't care for it. Uh, the uh, the we we also have a throwback to some aud an audio cue that was uh, that was kind of fun. Yeah, when Andy Garcia realizes um, the police that he was watching um, 
he gets on the walkie-talkie and and one of the guards says what happened to all that money that line was actually heard from the original version oh nice little audio there we we go a little little easter egg Uh, and and just one kind of awful tidbit that's like i guess worth noting the moment when you see andy garcia and julia roberts um kind of blowing up that hotel originally the hotel that they're blowing up is the new york new york um hotel on the vegas strip well um this actually happened uh it was filmed before september 11th and it was released after September 11th. And of course, after um, that horror, they realized they really can't show any sort of demolition of anything um, New York related. And so they replaced it with kind of a, a CG hotel, which uh, uh, is, is much better that way. You don't it's have much to better. tie in anything yeah. heavy. Yeah. And and the, the comedy is is good. You know, watching Basher watch the thing while... The hotel is being blown up behind him. I don't know if that was in the original. I it feels like a weird that would that would be a strange it was apparently connection. Yeah, you know, oh, they said they replaced that behind him too. Wow. Well, uh, anyhow, they we've we've obviously got a couple of sequels coming, uh, but this is that's not the only thing that has been done with this property. Right. The uh, Takarazuka Review. Uh, in Japan, actually adapted this movie as a musical in 2011-2012. It was performed by Star Troop, and um, I I don't know how well it succeeded, but it makes me very curious to see how the Ocean's Eleven musical in Japanese uh, performed. Um, I almost want to watch that. I think it'd be really interesting. <laughs> and and so was the this uh, other one, we've got a Bollywood film, uh, Happy New Year in 2014. Have you seen this? Do you know if it is... A remake? No, I haven't heard of it at all, which is, uh, yeah, it's, I find that funny that uh, there's this, uh, you know, it, what was the other, we talked about another film recently where there was a Bollywood version of it, um, and there was a lot of um, argument whether it was really a, 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 just a complete ripoff or not. Yeah, Gosh, I can't yeah remember it, it was, probably but. also was starring Shah Rukh Khan, uh, I think, because he's in everything. <laughs> uh, right. So, I uh, yeah, I don't remember, I don't recall. I don't know. But yeah, Happy New Year is apparently another version of this. So there you go. How did it do in awards season? Um, you know, it was a fun movie. It wasn't really designed for awards, but it still ended up with four wins and 20 other nominations. Um, at the Alma Awards, which is the American Latino Media Arts Awards, um, Andy Garcia ended up winning Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Motion Picture, which is fantastic. Um, I was looking for some interesting awards here. The German, uh, in Germany, they have the gold bogey award. And I guess this award is based on the number of people seeing a film within a certain time frame. Um, the gold award is for 3 million people seeing the film in a 30 day time span, which is obviously, um, uh, you know, speaks to its popularity. But I was just looking at these other bogey awards. Um, apparently, the the top bogey award is the platinum, and that is for any film that is viewed by at least ten million people. Um, so it's in it's thirty funny. days. <laughs> yeah, it's I, it, they don't say that with the the titanium, um, the platinum. See, it goes from the bogey award, which is a million people or a thousand people per copy, with a minimum of twenty five copies within first ten days. The bronze award is a million people within 10 days. The silver award, 2 million people within 20 days. The gold, 3 million people in 30 days. Platinum, 5 million people within the first 50 days of release. And then the titanium just says viewed by 10 million people. That requires too much math. It's it's such a strange (laughs) award. (laughs) Um, This was an interesting one that I think was, to me, it spoke... Um, a lot of films coming out in this year. The CSA, uh, the, the Casting Society of America, the Ardios Awards. The, it was nominated for Best Casting for a Feature Film Comedy. Deborah Zane was nominated. It's a brilliant bunch of casting, especially with all the turnover they had with roles. However, she ended up losing to um, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And when you think huh. about it, that film really set an incredible trajectory for the eight films in that franchise, not counting the Fantastic Beast films. Um, so I can almost say I agree with it, even though I think they put together a strong team here. Let's look at the numbers, Andy. So Soderbergh's remake cost a cool $85 million to make, which is about half of what the boys stole from Benedict and about $115.6 million in today's dollars. 
The movie was a smash when it opened on December 7th, 2001, pretty much by itself, grossing $183.4 million in the U.S. and $267.3 million internationally, giving it a grand total of almost $613 million in today's dollars. It was the fifth highest grossing film of 2001 behind Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, Monsters, Inc., and Shrek, and just ahead of Pearl Harbor, of all things. That leaves it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $4.3 million. Certainly a figure Danny Ocean would be happy with. That's fantastic. I uh, love the movie. I'm glad it was successful. I'm glad we have two more to talk about, even though they're on a little bit more Three shaky more. ground. Three more. That's right. Huzzah. <laughs> Three more to talk about. And I think we can make quick work of ranking it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You can see all the movies we've talked about on this uh, very show. Uh, and uh, Or you can swipe over in your show notes and you'll see the word flickchart. You just tap that and it will take you right to this movie in flickchart where you can add it to your own list. And uh, let's see where it stacks up. Where do we start? First up, Ocean's Eleven or The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Both remakes. Oh, actually, no. Uh, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I'm sorry. It's the Numi version. It's the original. Aha. Aha. Ocean's Eleven. I feel like I would go with um, Dragon Tattoo, but I'm going to say Ocean's Eleven um, to keep it in the top half. All right. There you go. Ocean's Eleven or Time Crimes. I'm Ocean's time Eleven. Crimes. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. One, two, three. three paper. There mm-hmm. you go. As it should be. I don't mind that. Ocean's Eleven or Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. Star Trek Two for me. Uh, I will uh, give you... I'll give you Star Trek 2. You're a giver. Yeah, I'm a giver. Ocean's Eleven or The World's End. Um, That's going to be... Oh, World's geez. End for me. Jeez. Yeah, World's End. Ocean's Eleven or The Philadelphia Story. Uh, Philadelphia Story for me. Ocean's Eleven. All right, let's, let's do, do it. it. Let's do it again. One, One two, two, three. three. Scissors. Scissors. Two for two, baby. <laughs> Ocean's Eleven or No Country for Old Men. Oh, definitely No Country for me. Uh, okay, no country for me. Ocean's Eleven or All About Eve? All About Eve for me. Uh, Ocean's Eleven. Let's do it. All right. One, One two, two, three. Paper. 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 Rock. I'm on a roll. Ocean's Eleven. Oh, here's some Brad Pitt uh, battle. Ocean's Eleven or Moneyball? Moneyball. Moneyball for me. Don't even Don't even need to think about it. well that lands oceans 11 at 74 on our chart pretty high um higher than i would uh put it but uh you know it's a fun film so it's okay all right so where is it on your chart my personal chart it landed at uh 1030 uh 1030 out of 3986 which is about a 74 percent oh man oh andy oh sweet (laughs) sweet andy uh mine is number 32 on my flip oh. chart out of uh, 1,025, and that puts it at 97. Going by the algorithm, this should be a five-star and a heart, uh, and, and I'm going to stick with that on letterbox.com slash the next reel. What do you think? Okay. Yeah. Um, it, mine would be the uh, 3.5 stars, and that is where it is. So, 3.5? Are you nuts? Yeah. Are no, you nuts? I, I, have a gr- I have a fun time with it. But um, but I've always struggled a little bit with the way the story unfolds, and so three point five yeah, struggle. We just had a great conversation about this movie that we have arguably no problems with, and it's three point five. It's it, it's because it it kind of unfolds rather slowly, and and it's rather here's slowly. The thing. Did you see nineteen sixties? No, it's, oh, I did, I did, <laughs> and I remember very specifically what you said at the beginning of this that you take it very personally. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm certainly experiencing that right now. But it's it's trust me, the film actually went up on on ranking for me. It was uh probably a three star before, and this time when I found so much more of a connection with uh with the Tess uh character, I ended up giving it an extra half star. So it has improved. It might improve on future viewings, but right now that's where it sits. Glory be, how gracious you are with your half stars, Andy. You just litter them around the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Oh, glory uh, be. Well, you know, in, in our in our world of, of uh, finite numbers of stars, I had That's to steal right. it from something. So 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, that's delightful, Andy. I'm very excited that we're in this series, even though you are wrong. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about where we go from here. Dangerous waters ahead. Yeah, we're talking about Ocean's 12, the next film in the franchise, uh, which came out uh, just a few years later. I believe it was uh, 2004. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it'll be an interesting one to look at. This is uh, the gang um, getting together for, uh, for some European heist action. So, off the oft-maligned uh, middle film. That's the one I'm most curious about. I, I remember it poorly, and I, I don't remember it as a poor film. I just remember it poorly. But I am told it's a poor film, so I want to see if those things line up. Well, I'll tell you, Pete, of the three films, this is the one that I have always said is my favorite. Oh, for crying out loud. I'm looking forward to talking about it with you next week. This may be our most contentious series ever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everybody, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on patreon.com slash the next reel and get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. We talk about movie news and new trailers. Plus, we go head-to-head in our weekly challenge in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week. There are all sorts of other goodies, too, if you support us at different levels. Just head on over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. And you know the drill, everybody. You can head over to thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, and follow us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook at The Next Reel. The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart, who runs the Instagram program, Ben Lott, who runs all things Twitter and The Blot Spot, and very special thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song, Ragtime Instrumental as the theme of this show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Now, because you're so divisive, (laughs) you've gone for a five star, and I have gone with a one star. That's right. Where would you like to begin? Let's end high. Okay. All right. Well, then I will begin with the good and kindly Eden, uh, who was not a fan of this movie and writes, uh, no. I tried to watch this movie, but after the first seconds of hearing Clooney's voice, I got sleepy. My eyes blurred at the screen, and everything got dark. Oops. Sorry. I'm having a flashback to the moment I forgot how to type. I didn't see this movie and don't know if I ever will, so don't bother with my opinion. It's just one out of many. Thanks, Eden. Critical analysis. (laughs) Wow, so did she see it or not? I, I don't know. She said maybe the first few seconds. It's almost I don't like think, a dream. I don't think Clooney got out of prison. Oh, man. It's a very different movie. Well, I have a five-star that you will appreciate. It's by Patrick A. Huber, who says, really good movie. A new Mission Impossible? Oh, Jesus. This was a really good movie, in my opinion. I rented it. I thought that it was just a good movie until the ending really caught me. And then I was like, dang, you know, it really makes you think. I don't get the Mission Impossible bit. I'm I'm not going to be, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't get it. It makes you think, Pete. I love his enthusiasm. It's like Mission Impossible. (laughs) Like, dang. Dang. Thanks, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible okay we're gonna play a little game i'm gonna name a series from season seven and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations (laughs) nice i own this game we shall see 
Here we go, starting with an easy one. The Millennium Trilogy. <laughs> Seriously? The girl with the dragon tattoo, the girl who played with fire, the girl who kicked the hornet's nest. Die Hard. Uh, well, Die Hard 1 and 2. Except Nothing Lasts Forever, which is where Die Hard came from, isn't on Audible. What? Crime of the Century! Okay, 1968 musicals. Uh, Mary Poppins. Nice. We've covered a lot of great movies that started as books. Books like East of Eden, Giant. Or All You Zombies, upon which Predestination was based. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Audible. 